couches, but I appreciate you guys wanting to stay awake and not sitting on the couches. And uh, so we actually had a little bit of capacity um, at 9.15. We have a little bit of capacity at 10.30. And if the live stream is working, then we actually have overflow in the other room as well. So uh, I just want to encourage you, with all of the change and the weirdness, please keep coming to worship. Uh, please keep attending in person. Uh, we want you here. And uh, it's, it's a little bit of a different setting. Everybody was walking out of the early service saying, you know, I sat by people I've never sat by before. Uh, it, was a, it was a different room, it was kind of a different perspective, it was new, it was fun, and I hope that those are the takeaways from uh, this service as well, is that just sitting down in the row you're in, you meet new people, you interact with people you wouldn't normally interact with, because we want to be a family, and uh, we have a challenge that we're facing as a family. It will probably be a couple months. Our status right now is that our insurance is working with a couple of remediation companies. We still don't know um, a, a lot of details as far as when actually the cleanup work will start, how extensive it will be, how long it will take, but we're basically, we've been told to be prepared um, until March to be out of the sanctuary. And so uh, pray for us as we navigate that and, and navigate the challenges that that brings with it. Um, I also just want to say personally thank you um, for your kindness to me personally, because if you didn't get the memo. Um, this was my fault. Um, I was the one that started the, the fire accidentally. I well, purposely started the fire and then accidentally didn't put it out. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it is my responsibility. And uh, thank you for your graciousness, your kindness. Uh, we do hope that insurance will um, cover exactly what we need. Um, many have asked how, we, how you can help. Um, you can help by attending services. You can help by serving wherever you were serving before. You can help by e leaning even more into community, into life groups, into being a part of the body in this season. Um, maybe God will use this to grow us closer together through this challenge. That will be my prayer. Uh, financially, uh, again, we're hoping that, that insurance covers it. Uh, continue to give towards the general fund, but we have no special needs created by this incident at this time. And we'll let you know if, if, if it ends up that we do. There's lots of questions with um, tech equipment and furniture and all of those sorts of things that we're still trying to figure out. So I would appreciate your prayers as we navigate those challenges. As far as Christmas goes, um, tonight uh, we have our last Awana for the year until Christmas, and youth will meet tonight. And then uh, next Sunday night is our caroling night. And so uh, some of us are going to meet at, and carol and go to different houses. Some of you will have carolers come to your house, and you need to communicate with Jason about whether you're going to be here and then divide up into groups to carol or whether you um, are going to stay at home and you want somebody to come. We recognize not everybody can get out and walk around the street and, you know, go. So we want some of our older families to just be blessed by having people come and visit and carol. Um, so that's next Sunday. The Sunday after that is, uh, is the bluegrass night. That's, that's happening still. That's going to happen um, in, in this room, and so please um, uh, be, uh, have that on your calendar. Um, Rika has a table set out for parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whatever. If you have a young child in your household or in your family that you are buying Christmas presents for, that is the purpose of that table out there. Not so that you can grab something for free, but so that you can see some suggestions coming from our kids' director and also some of the other moms that she worked with to curate just a, a table full of things that um, we all give kids gifts in Christmas season. 
And if you want to give your kids something that can point them closer to Jesus, that can uh, result in some times for you to be reading with your kids, something that disciples them and points them towards Jesus, that's the purpose of that table, for you to see some suggestions from, um, uh, from Rika and some other moms in the church. Uh, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 1. This one's going to be fun. Oh, one other thing. I didn't say this in the last service. Uh, we do have offering boxes both in this room and in the lobby. Many of you, you know, we don't take up offerings in our services. That's intentional. We want you to be disciplined and regular in your giving, and you can do that online. You can set up automatic um, bill pay through your bank, um, but also many of you give regularly through bringing a check and putting it in the offering box. We have one in the lobby. We have one right here on the bar, um, and they're both labeled, so please, as you're um, thinking through your tithes and offerings, um, we have those there available for you. Matthew chapter 1, uh, we're going, going deep into some questions of how, to what extent we can actually trust the Bible. Can we trust the Bible? You know, um, everybody's played the telephone game at some point as a kid, where you've um, had somebody on one end of the room whisper something into somebody's ear, and then it goes down the line until it gets to the other side of the room, and you recognize after 10, 15 different um, channels of communication, the, the message changes. I was thinking this week about having young children in the home, how it doesn't take 10 or 15 different cha channels of communication. It only really takes one, one transfer from one adult through a young child to another adult almost never results in the message that you wanted to intend. And, you know, we have multiple families. We have, we have a, a household that involves um, Jess's parents that live in our basement. Of course, us on the main floor. We now have a high school student that lives upstairs with us. And occasionally, one of the adults will say, I'm not going to run up and down the stairs to communicate a message. I'm going to send a child to communicate a message. And typically, that results in a limited measure of communication. That it, the whole story doesn't quite get across. And as I was thinking about that, I, I don't want to tell a story that makes my own kids look bad, so I'm going to tell a story that makes me look bad. Um, I remember when I was a child. I, I remember this like it was yesterday. I was um, with my mother, and, and my brother was there, my sister, my mother, and there was a minor kind of fender, literally a fender bender in a parking lot. Literally, um, we were backing out of a parking space, and there was another car, and actually our, our, fen our front fender bent forward. And uh, we were at, now this was back in the dark ages when there were no cell phones. And, and hopefully some of you remember that. And instead of cell phones, there were these things called pay phones. And so when the police came and they were filling out all the information and my mom was working with the other driver and the police officer and all that, she sent me in. She commissioned me with a very important task. And she gave me coins and she told me to go find the pay phone that was inside the business and to go call my dad at work, and she gave me the number, call dad at work, tell him what happened and that everybody's okay. I said, okay, got it. And I was really like big stuff. I was like, man, I, this is my important mission. I was probably nine or 10 years old, and I was going with money to a payphone to deliver a very important message. And I remember it because I remember my dad's reaction to my communication. Because what I said, my dad answered the phone, and I said, Dad, mom's been in an accident, but we're okay. And he said, who's okay? And I said, we're okay. Like Dan and Charity and me, we were all in the car. We're okay. He said, 
but mom was in an accident. I said, yeah, mom was in an accident, but we're okay. He said, is mom okay? Oh. See, in my mind, we was inclusive of everybody in the car is okay. But I threw a but in between. Mom was in an accident, but we're okay. And my dad is very, uh, my family is very particular about communication. Jess can attest to it. Um, but so we like to correct people in our communication a lot. And so my dad said, well, listen, if you want to communicate something to me, make sure you're clear in what you are saying. So to this day, I remember that, that scene from almost 30 years ago or whatever it was, communicating to my dad, mom was in an accident, but we're okay. So with the game of telephone, it's similar. That, that the, the message gets skewed over time because some sources are just unreliable. Not everybody has the same level of hearing, has the same ability to just transfer a message. And so when we look at the Bible, one of the things that gets said about the Bible a lot is critics of the Bible say, well, really what happened with the New Testament in particular is just this long game of telephone that stretched across multiple generations of the early church. That um, this thing happened with Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but then they told somebody what happened. And then that person told somebody else what happened. And then that person told somebody else what happened. And then that person told somebody else. And now what we have are these books that tell stories. But can we really be confident that those stories are the truth of what actually happened? Bart Ehrman is actually a New Testament scholar. He was a conservative evangelical. He was trained in understanding the scriptures. And now he's an incredibly, um, uh, an incredibly loud voice of criticism against the Bible. And he uses this very illustration. He says the New Testament is just a big telephone game. Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist that you may have heard of, uses the same argument. So that's the question for today that we've got to unpack. It, it, can we actually have confidence in this story? I mean, this story has changed human history over the last 2,000 years. The, the Western world over the last 2,000 years has been significantly shaped by the Bible, by the church, by Christianity. And we are here gathered together uh, recognize in, in a season where we're, we're calling it Advent or Christmas, recognizing that the Son of God was born of a virgin and then lived, grew to adulthood, suffered, died, and then was raised again from the dead. We believe that. And y'all, it's crazy. It's crazy to believe that at one measure, right? It's crazy to say that this ancient book tells all of these miracles that we can believe it. It's only crazy if it is an ancient game of telephone. It's crazy if it's not true. But we believe that it's true. And the goal for this morning is to walk out of this room with more confidence. More confidence that the baby in the manger really was the son of God. And he really was born of a virgin. He really did die. He really did raise again from the dead. And he really is living, sitting, enthroned in heaven, watching over us right now. And his message of salvation is for each one of us so that we can get wrapped up into this story of peace, hope, love, and joy. So Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the New Testament, has one of those contradictions, a contradiction that many critics of the New Testament would say, see, this proves to us we can't trust the Bible. This proves to us that it's just an, an ancient telephone game. Matthew chapter 1 and Luke 3, that's where we're going to go. Because right there in the Christmas story is this apparent contradiction that we have to wrestle with. 
Maybe you've seen it before. An article came across my email this very week in which somebody called it a, a damning, a damning problem for the New Testament. Because this contradiction just proves to us that the New Testament cannot be trustworthy. Why? Because Joseph has two different fathers. Why? Because Shealtiel has two different fathers. Maybe that's a name you've never heard before. Zerubbabel has two different sons. So what is the truth of the story of Jesus' family? We're going to talk genealogies today, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Genealogy, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. I'm not going to read all the way through. But from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down until verse 16, you have somebody was the father of somebody, was the father of somebody, was the father of somebody. But then Luke does something similar. And that's where the problem comes up. There's no problem in Matthew if Matthew stands on its own. The problem, the reason some people say you can't trust your New Testament, shows up in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Luke 3, 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi. Now, you, you see there's differences from the beginning. From the very beginning, you know, Matthew 1 starts with Abraham and works forward, works from Abraham to Joseph. Uh, Luke 3 moves backwards, starts with Joseph and goes backwards. Joseph was the son of, instead of Abraham was the father of, da-da-da-da-da, it's Joseph was the son of and moves backwards in time. So that's, that's one understanding. It, it's simple, but that's not actually the problem. The problem is the difference between Matthew 1.16 and Luke 3.23. That's when we know we have a problem. Matthew 1.16 says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Luke 3.23, I read it once, I'll read it again, see if you notice anything. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of, or being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Who's Joseph's father? Is it Heli? Or is it Jacob? Matthew says Joseph's father was Jacob. Luke says Joseph's father was Haley. The, the problem actually gets worse. You know, one of the reasons that the book of Matthew uh, contains this genealogy is because uh, Matthew is trying to show that Jesus really is the son of David. You know, David had multiple sons. One was named Solomon. And in Matthew's genealogy, the, the genealogy goes through the line of Solomon. David was the, son, was the father of Solomon, and Solomon was the father of whoever. I'm blanking. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Luke 3 says, actually, Jesus and Joseph, Jesus' father, was descended not from Solomon, but actually from Solomon's brother, Nathan. That, that shows up there in Luke 3, um, 31. So Matthew 1, 6 says, Jesus came through the line of Solomon, the son of David. Luke 3.31 says Jesus came through the line of David's son, Nathan. Matthew 1.3 says uh, Zerubbabel had his son, Abiad. Luke 3.27 says Zerubbabel had a son, Risa, that was then a part of Jesus' line. And then, of course, Matthew 1.16 and Luke 3.23, the differences. We have three different differences. We have three problems here. Who was... Whose son of David did Jesus come from? 
who was the son of Zerubbabel, and who was the father of Joseph? Are, are you concerned yet? Is, is this a problem? Because he, here's the reality. If the authors of the New Testament cannot be trusted to tell us who was and was not in Jesus' family, can they be trusted to tell us that miracles that change the meaning of the world actually happen? See, the resurrection, literally, everything we believe about everything hinges on whether or not the resurrection actually happens. Like, I know that's, that's Easter. We're not supposed to talk about Easter. It's Christmas. But, y'all, it all hinges on the resurrection. Christmas is about the resurrection, too. The baby in the manger is, is, is just a sweet story if that baby doesn't grow to be a man and die and raise again from the dead. It hinges on the resurrection. So what we're really talking about is not whether or not we can trust the virgin birth. That's important. What we're talking about is whether or not we can trust the resurrection because that's the miracle on which all other miracles hinge. So well, let's talk about this. There's an answer, y'all. And actually, the answer is not that complicated. And I, my goal for today is not to be super academic and nerdy. I'm going to be a little bit nerdy because I'm a little bit of a nerd. But you don't have to go full nerd with me. I just want you to walk out of this room with more confidence. I'm not going to answer every question. I'm going to answer some questions. And I'm going to help bring us to the point where we have enough confidence in the questions that I have answered that you actually believe there are answers to the other questions too. And with a little bit of research and a little bit of work, we can get to the point of fuller and more significant confidence in what this book actually says. So the simple problem that is right there in the Christmas story, whose, whose genealogy is right, Matthew or Luke? They can't both be right, right? Luke 3.23 gives us a hint of an answer. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age being the son, parentheses, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Haley. And right there, in those parentheses, you get a little bit of a hint at what the solution to this problem actually is. There, we have two different biographies of Jesus here. Matthew and Luke. Both, we call them gospels. They're essentially biographies. And both men researched, talked to eyewitnesses. Matthew was an eyewitness himself. Luke was not an eyewitness. Luke was, did not walk around following Jesus like Matthew did. But Matthew used his own memory and some other eyewitnesses. Luke used all eyewitnesses to tell the story of the life of Jesus. Who were Matthew and Luke? Matthew was a tax collector, and that's important. Luke was a doctor. That's also important. Those two guys knew something about research and record keeping. Those are two vocations, certainly in our day and age, but also in the first century. Detail-oriented vocations where research, understanding, family dynamics, family connections are important. So, from a legal sense, Luke, or, or Matthew, was looking at from his own, he had access to tax records. He had access to the history of Israel. He had access to the genealogies uh, that the nation of Israel maintained in order to look back and see heritage. So he could easily see Joseph was descended from Jacob. Jacob was Joseph's father. I believe Matthew. I believe Matthew that Jacob was Joseph's father. You know what? I also believe Luke, but it's a little bit different because Luke wasn't a tax collector. He was a doctor. And Luke cannot say something that is medically untrue in his, in his biography of Jesus. And I love it because Luke, as a doctor, has to put in parentheses 
as was supposed, to clarify, because he's a doctor, that from a biological standpoint, Luke does not believe that Joseph was the actual father of Jesus. That's significant. That's what he's telling you there. When he says in Luke 3.23, Jesus being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, what he's telling you there is, Jesus not, is not really biologically the son of Joseph. And he's already said that. He's already made that clear in Luke 1. In Luke 1, an angel shows up to Mary and tells Mary, you're going to have a baby that's not going to have a biological father. Because the Holy Spirit of God is going to come upon you, and you, as a virgin, are going to conceive, and then you're going to bear a son. And Luke, in 3.23, he's not going to then contradict what he already said. He's going to say, actually, in parentheses, it was supposed that Jesus was the son of Joseph. Okay, how does that help us? Because either Joseph is the son of Haley or Joseph is the son of, of Jacob. Here's what I believe, and this is what, what Christians for many centuries have believed, that Matthew tells the story or tells the genealogy of Joseph's actual line, and Luke tells the genealogy of Mary. And that one simple shift, it's like, oh, actually, that could actually make sense. If Luke tells the story of Mary, then why does Luke say that Joseph is the son of Heli? Because Joseph was a, the son-in-law of Heli. Um, and Joseph would be then seen as, now any of these genealogies, both Matthew and Luke, there's a reason they tell them from the man's perspective, because that's how you trace family lines. But, but Luke is not necessarily, is does, we don't have to take Luke as saying, Joseph is literally the son of Heli, because Joseph could actually be the legal son of Haley. Haley is his father-in-law. And Haley could be considered legally as the son of Joseph, and here's how. Who were Mary's siblings? Does the New Testament give us any information about Mary's siblings? It does, actually, believe it or not. You may not remember it. It's kind of a, a minor detail. But Mary has sisters. Mary has sisters that show up at the, at the cross. And Mary is standing with her sisters, observing the cross there are no brothers. We don't know for sure whether there were brothers or not, but there are no brothers that show up in the story. So that leaves open the possibility that Mary didn't have brothers, which meant that Mary's husband, Joseph, carried the family line from Haley too. I'm not saying we know that for sure, but it's enough of a possibility that it completely unravels this huge contradiction in the New Testament. It's enough of a possibility, it makes enough sense that everything else that comes from there suddenly makes sense. Because then we can say that Jesus was descended, in one sense, from both the line of Solomon and the line of Nathan. That Joseph was descended from Solomon and Mary was descended from Nathan. And those two lines that were both sons of David came together in the royal line and King Jesus is still a descendant of David through either direction. Now there's one problem left. And it's the names that are hard to say. Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. Okay, what do you do with that? Because, I already told you, and you can look it up. I'm not throwing all the verses up, up here on the screen because I'm, I'm kind of going fast. And I, I want you to kind of just write down the verse numbers and, and look at this later. Because as I said, we're not going to spend our whole time on this. I just want you have a little bit more confidence in these verse narratives. Matthew 1.3 says, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, and then Abiud. Uh, Luke 3.27 says Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, and then Risa. 
But here's the thing. Zerubbabel's not just the problem. Shealtiel has different dads in, in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. So if you really go back and look, you're like, who are these guys, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel? And who was Shealtiel's dad? Who was Zerubbabel's son? Just a simple, a simple explanation. Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. The Shealtiel and Zerubbabel that show up in Matthew 1 are significant. And they're, they're significant. They're, they're from the kingly line. They show up in the book of, of Ezra and, and Nehemiah in that, in that setting. They're important characters within, or they're important figures within, um, within that story. And they became famous in the nation of Israel. But what's, ne- what's necessary to look at is the two, if you, if you were to line up the two genealogies, I could put it on the screen for you, but I, I, I can send it to you if you want it later. From Abraham to David, those two genealogies are exactly the same. That's a good thing. And then Matthew goes down the line of Solomon, and um, Luke goes down the line of Nathan. And they both get to Shealtiel and Zerubbabel somewhere. But they're at different points. Different people come between Solomon and Shealtiel, and different people come between Nathan and Shealtiel. And so you've got one problem solved by just seeing Luke's account going through Mary. How do you solve the Shealtiel Zerubbabel problem? You have two famous men in the history of Israel, a man named Shealtiel who named his son Zerubbabel. Now, it was very common in the nation of Israel to recognize and to honor famous figures in Israel's history by naming your son after him. And so all you have to say is Shealtiel and Zerubbabel in the Matthew narrative are the Shealtiel and Zerubbabel that show up in Ezra. And then what we see in Luke is a different Shealtiel who also has a son named Zerubbabel. You're like, well, that's quite a coincidence. We can't make an argument for the word of God based on that. And sure we can. Because if you were named after a famous Jew and your name was Shealtiel and you know that that famous Jew had a son named Zerubbabel, it wouldn't be a stretch. It would not be a stretch to then, in honor of both Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, to name your son Zerubbabel. Now, and, and if you look at it, um, there's other ways of tracing it. There, there's certainly, uh, Matthew has some gaps in his genealogies. That's okay. It's okay that Matthew doesn't name every single person that comes between Abraham and Jesus. It, it's okay. Luke has more people in his line. That's, that's okay too. Because what we're trying to do is we're not trying to do a genealogical study of exactly the bloodlines of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. What we're trying to do is ask the question, is there an answer? Is there an explanation? And what I'm telling you is I believe the explanation is really simple. What I said might not have sounded simple. But here's what the simple explanation. That there can be two Shealtiels and two Zerubbabels. And Luke, I think, is kind of giving us a nod in his parentheses of saying Jesus was supposed as the son of Joseph, but not the literal son of Joseph. I think that's Luke telegraphing for us. He's not necessarily tra- tracing Joseph's line, but he's tracing Mary's line. And that's the view of, of, many, of many Christian scholars throughout many generations. So then why, if we have an explanation for that, do people like Richard, Bach, or, um, Richard Dawkins and Bart Ehrman still say, this is a huge problem? Well, because there are maybe some other questions that we can ask. But those questions have answers too. And what happens when you start to criticize the word of God is you're looking for every little thing. 
you're trying to, to unravel the veracity of the New Testament. And, and what these critics do is they take one little thing and then another little thing. And what they're trying to give you is just a list of little things that can potentially unravel your confidence in the word of God. They'll say, they'll tell you there's other contradictions, like the ascension. Where does Jesus ascend from? Does Jesus ascend from Bethany or from the Mount of Olives? Well, Luke says Bethany and, and Acts says the Mount of Olives. Which is it? Well, Bethany's at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It, it, it's easy to understand geographically how a, a published, literally, critics of the New Testament will publish this argument without recognizing that the town of Bethany is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And those terms can be inclusive. You can be in Bethany and at the foot of the Mount of Olives at the same time. It's not a complicated thing. But these are the way the, the contradictions in the New Testament work. You pick at something small. You say, well, did Jesus feed 4,000 or 5,000? Well, Matthew says he did it twice. He fed 4,000 one time and he fed 5,000 another time. And, and, and then you, you see things like this and you, and you, and you say, well, what, when did something happen? It seems like John is out of order with the other Gospels. Of course he is. Not all of the Gospels take the same technique. See, here's, here's one of the things to know. If you were investigating a crime, and you had a group of three witnesses to a crime, and you wanted to, you know, you do like the cop shows on TV, right? And you separate the guys into different rooms. You got three bad guys. You put them all into different rooms, and you try to figure out what's happening, okay? And you ask number one, and you get a story. You ask number two, you get exactly the same story, word for word, every detail in line. Apparently, neither one of them are guilty. They say exactly the same thing. Number three says exactly the same thing. Would you get suspicious if those three accounts are identical in every respect? Now, what if you had three accounts that told similar stories, that were complementary, but one person told a story from that angle of the room, one person told a story from that angle of the room, and that person told a story from that angle of the room? How would you feel about that to say, well, actually, so they have different perspectives on this. They remember different details, but their stories are able to coalesce into one secure narrative. See, that's what the gospel witnesses do for us. We have four biographies of the most important figure in human history, and they tell stories, sometimes in different orders. That doesn't mean that John thinks things happened in the order that he tells the stories. It means that John is telling stories across themes. And John is saying, what you need to know is that Jesus did this, and he did this. John, it's and. Matthew, it's Jesus did this, then he did this. And that's an important distinction. John's not saying that Jesus went immediately from here to here. Matthew is saying that. John's saying, he did this at one point, he did this at another point. So you can't look at the timelines of the Gospels and say, no, that's a problem. They're, they're remembering and retelling the same story from different perspectives, sometimes in different orders, but they're not actually arguing with each other. That's not a contradiction in the same way somebody who saw something from that end of the room and somebody who saw something a little bit different from that end of the room are not contradicting each other when they are telling a complementary story from different perspectives. So we don't have four Gospels that say the same thing. We wouldn't need that, and it actually would not give us good confidence. Four Gospels that tell the stories in a little bit of a different way that are easily uh, seen to be complementary, that gives us confidence. And that's what we have. 
And then you might say, well, what about, aren't, aren't the Bible stories more like fishing stories? Where like, when you catch the fish, it's that big. And then when you go and tell somebody about it, it's that big. And then the next week when you tell somebody about it, it's like that big. And then when the next week, it's like that big, right? That every time you tell a fishing story, the fish gets a little bit bigger. And maybe that's the way the Gospels work. Because you know, the Gospels were written a, a lifetime, some of them, a lifetime after the death and resurrection of Jesus. At least 40 years, Mark, the first Gospel, shows up 40 years after the death and resurrection. Can we trust something that's written 40 years later? Maybe the story just grew over time. Two, two things on that. Does anybody remember in any great detail an event that happened 40 years ago? I would imagine that if anyone in this room is a mother of somebody that is 40 years old, you remember that story. You remember the event. You remember the significance. Now, does the doctor that delivered your 40-year-old son remember that? No, he probably doesn't. He's done it 100 times. Does the nurse remember it? No. It didn't have the same level of significance for them. But does the mother remember an event from a generation ago that transformed her life from then on? Yeah, the mother remembers that. Do you remember a life-changing event in great detail? I just told you a, a story from 27 years ago that I remember in great detail of me not communicating well with my dad. I don't remember everything that happened 27 years ago, but events of great significance, that's not a stretch. If you saw somebody walk on water 40 years ago, do you think you'd be able to tell the story today? See, see, the Gospels tell stories of such significance that the fact that it wasn't written down for 40 years isn't an argument at all. It actually is just easy to understand that somebody that for 40 years has, been, has had their life transformed by a miracle they saw, of course they remember it. If you saw a guy die, and then three days later you saw him alive, would you remember that? And would you remember it for 50 years? Would you remember the details for the rest of your life? Yeah, you would. And we know that Mark actually interviewed literal eyewitnesses in the years 30 to 40 years after the events of the Gospels. Or what about these fishing stories concept? Maybe, maybe they told the truth at the beginning, but the stories grew over time. Here's the problem with that. The resurrection. If nothing else in the New Testament mattered, the resurrection would still be transformative. Now we know everything in the New Testament matters. But the resurrection is the first in the list of the important miracles. And you know what? Everything hangs on it. And so if it was true that maybe the New Testament documents were just books of wisdom and, and clever teachings by Jesus, and then the big miracles just developed over time, over generations then we wouldn't have the resurrection as being such an important part of the very first generation of Christians. The resurrection is the most significant miracle, and it is, the, and it is right there in the very earliest versions. And nothing else, people don't give up their lives because a guy walked on water. People don't suffer because a guy turned water into wine. People don't suffer for a great teacher the way that they did. They suffer for a resurrected Savior. And that, that's what happened. If you, were, if you were a key figure in the early church, and the books about your faith talked about you, would you want to be represented well or poorly? Let's say you were Peter. 
one of the biggest figures in the first generation of the church, one of the most influential, would you, if you had any ability to manipulate or control the story, how would you make yourself look? Like the guy that denied the Son of God? Would you look like the guy, the only one of the disciples that was actually called Satan? Get behind me, Satan. Would you want to be that guy? Peter had incredible authority in the early church. He didn't change the story. And, and, if he, and if we say, well, Peter, James, John, they twisted the story. Why did James and John leave the part where Jesus um, rebukes their mother? I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't leave the, Jesus talking, talking about my mother and say, no, don't, don't do that. Don't ask that question. I wouldn't leave the part where Jesus rebukes me in there. I wouldn't leave the part where I denied Christ if I was Peter. You can't say that the, the disciples manipulated this. So if, if all of these things fall apart, then what do we say? We say that this is a book that we can have confidence in. Last, last argument to have confidence in Scripture. If you're going to make something up, if you're going to take a regular dude and spin a story where he was God, you would want to have your ducks in a row. You would want to have authoritative witnesses. You would want to have a compelling story. You would want to tell it in such a way that nobody's going to question it and everybody's going to believe it, right? So then, who were the first people to witness and proclaim that Jesus had resurrected from the dead? They were witnesses that would not be able to testify in court because they were women. You wouldn't have written the story that way. That doesn't make any sense. You don't craft a false narrative that hinges on the eyewitness testimony of women who in the first century could not testify openly in court because they were seen as, as less significant. You don't tell that story that way. But here we have a story of broken disciples like Peter, James, and John, of women that are authoritative witnesses to the resurrection. We have a story that tells miracles from beginning to end, from the point of miraculous uh, conception of Jesus becoming um, a, a fetus in Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit. From that point until the resurrection, you have miracle after miracle after miracle. And you know, we can argue if you want to have a conversation about manuscripts and about 2nd century manuscripts and 3rd century manuscripts and 4th century manuscripts. We can talk about that. We're not going to do that this morning because we have some more stuff to talk about. But if you want to talk really in-depth about how we got the translations, how we got the manuscripts, how we got the, the, the Bible going from Greek or Hebrew to English, we can have those conversations. But the point for today is to just answer a few of those questions about contradictions in the birth genealogies, contradictions in the way stories are told, or problems or, or reasons to disbelieve the Scriptures. The goal is to walk out today with just a little bit more confidence so that you'll take the time to actually seek out the other questions. See, people in this season of time, it's Christmas. We love Christmas. We love the warm, fuzzy feeling it gives us. But we need to really examine, can we trust the story? People around us are questioning, can we trust the story? You know what? I love the genealogy because it's a beautiful story. So go back with me to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to start arguing about whether we can trust it or not. And we're just going to assume now, let's trust it and let's see the beauty of the genealogy. There's, there's four women named in a fifth that is unnamed but present in Matthew's genealogy. There's Tamar, 
Tamar, who was a widow, who was mistreated by her husband's family, mistreated by her own father-in-law, used as a prostitute by by her own father-in-law. It's a graphic, gruesome, terrible story in the book of Genesis. And God's not too embarrassed by the story of Judah and Tamar to not include it in the line of Jesus. He puts it in there. Matthew records it, that Judah and Tamar are a part of the line of Christ, and that was God's good intention. To heal, to restore, to, to, to meet the suffering Tamar in the point of her suffering, and actually to bring an eternal royal line through her. But it's not just about Tamar. It, Rahab. Tamar suffered because of what was done to her and what happened to her. Rahab suffered largely because of her own decisions. Rahab was a prostitute. But Rahab was also outside, more importantly than being a prostitute, she was outside of the covenant of promise. She was a Jerichoite. She was a resident of Jericho when Jericho was about to be destroyed. But she responded to the revelation of God she received from the spies that showed up at her doorstep. She trusted and in faith became a part of the nation and followed Yahweh, the God of Israel. She became a mother of the Messiah, a mother of the royal line too. Ruth, just a couple generations after Rahab, Ruth shows up, another widow. Ruth is suffering famine, leaves her homeland in the midst of famine, clings to her mother-in-law, and actually clings to the faith of her mother-in-law. She too sees her story redeemed. Mary, the teenager, suffers the public humiliation as becoming pregnant outside of marriage. And we know it was significant because even her own husband, Joseph, sought to quietly divorce her, to end the engagement. And so we know that other people had to be thinking the same thing Joseph was. This is a problem. Something's off here. Mary did something. And Mary, God had called her blessed, and she remained faithful. And God used her story to redeem the brokenness and to tell a beautiful story. So the the women in the story really give us the first hint at how beautiful this story of the genealogy is. But it goes deeper than that. Look at the brokenness of all the men in the story. And and some of the men are good too, guys. But there's a lot of broken men in the story. The the woman that's not named, that is referred to in the genealogy from Matthew chapter 1, is the wife of Uriah. The biggest public failure in the history of King David, the king of Israel. He wants another man's wife, and he takes her, and he brings her into into his bed. He impregnates her, and then he murders her husband. He manipulates the situation on the battlefield so that Uriah will die. It's a heinous, terrible sin, a series of sins by the great King David. And yet God is telling a story of the frailty and brokenness of mankind and the beauty of the redemption of of his own work and his own plan. So the women in the story, the brokenness of the story, and the great sin of the story gives us a hint at the gospel. That God isn't about using perfect people. God is about redeeming imperfections. Adam, at the very beginning, he fell. Abraham, he lied. He, tw- he twice told the same lie about his wife being his sister. Got in trouble for it once. What did he do? He just did it again. Isaac schemed and cheated his brother and lied to his father. Judah lied and hired his daughter-in-law as a prostitute. We already talked about that. David stole a, woman, uh, stole a man's wife and murdered him. Solomon was literally a sinner of epic proportions. 
Uh, uh, the significance of the sexual sin and promiscuity of, of Solomon go beyond our imagination. Joseph, the one who was betrothed to marry the mother of Jesus, even he, he was fearful. He was fearful and he sought to divorce his wife or divorce his fiance to end the engagement because he did not believe that she really had seen an angel and was conceived by the Holy Spirit. There's brokenness in every family tree, including Jesus's. You know, we love Christmas because Christmas is all about joy and peace and hope. And sometimes family is a part of that. And sometimes family is not a part of that. Right. Because sometimes family can be really peaceful and joyful. And sometimes family can be the exact opposite of peaceful. Some of those family gatherings are a little bit awkward. They're a little bit difficult where you recognize, you know what? Our family really does. We have this brokenness. We have sin in the camp, sin, sin in the household. We have failed each other. We've let each other down. We've made mistakes. Uh, and here, right into the narrative of the story of Christmas, God gives us a story of a family that is redeemed time after time after time after time. You ain't going to get more broken than Jesus' family. Whatever, whatever your crazy uncle did, it's not like Judah. The, the depravity and the wickedness that is seen in this family tree shows the glory of the grace and the goodness of God. And that's available for our families too. So what do we lose if we don't trust the Bible? I'm going to close this way. If we don't trust the Bible, we miss this story. Stories like the genealogy of Jesus that, that unfold the story of redemption and grace and forgiveness for all of us. We miss that if we don't trust the Bible. We also miss the way of salvation. The truth of John 3.16 that says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life. The, the, the way of salvation in John 14.6 in which Jesus says, I'm the only way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father God except through me. We miss that if we don't trust the story. We also miss the mercy that the Word of God gives us every day. A few weeks ago, I shared with you from Lamentations 3 that in the midst of the most intense suffering the city of Jerusalem had ever experienced as they were exiting out into exile, Jeremiah penned this poem in, in, in Lamentations 3 in which he said, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And he reminds himself of that. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. The Bible, the word of God, when we have confidence in it, brings hope, peace, and joy even on the darkest days. So sometimes we just need to remind ourselves of the promises. The promises that were true for Israel and are true for us. We also miss the living and active power of the word that Hebrews tells us. We also miss the prophet of the word that, that 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us about. That the word of God is inspired by God, but that it's also useful. You know that this book is useful for you today. And if you have confidence in it, then it shouldn't be sitting shut on a shelf. It should be sitting open on a table so that it can be read and so that it can be lived. Because the word of God is useful for teaching, for rebuking for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. For teaching, we have something to learn still. For rebuking, we mess up, and we need to be rebuked, and we need to call sin, sin, and we need to call sinners, sinners. We need to be corrected when we make mistakes. And we need to be trained. We need to know what it means to live a life of righteousness. And if we don't trust the book, we don't have 
then we don't have any instruction in it. We also miss the story of beauty, of a baby that really is born of a virgin, that really is the son of God, of a baby that really does grow up and become a man and is suffer and suffers and is killed, crucified, died, ra- raises again, and is asking you to join him in the new life that he offers. We miss that story. And so I said the goal, the goal was to leave this room with more confidence in the scriptures than you entered. But here's another goal. And it comes with a question. Are you living in confidence that the word of God, that the living, active, profitable word of God has been made available to you? Because if you really believe that, then living in that confidence means opening the book. Means actually seeking to learn righteousness, seeking to be corrected in the way that you're thinking of even about the world, the way you're thinking about others, the way you're responding to others, to grow in a life of godliness and righteousness from opening the book that we can have confidence in, that is God's revealed word to us. So the story in this tells us a story of a baby born of a virgin that many people, from the lowliest of shepherds to the most wealthy of wise men come to adore and come to worship. So we're going to close this morning in worship. We're going to come and we're going to adore the baby in the manger that became the resurrected king because we have confidence that God has spoken to us. So stand with us and we'll sing together. step down from heaven humbly you came God of all creation here with us in a starlit Why?